You have unlocked the eternal link to internal source. The key of imagination. Your admission. Access to the enlightened dimension. A gateway at the junction of darkness and light. The place at which the chaos of our conditioned frame of mind give way to a life in constant flux, only to be mastered through vigilant discipline. Peaceful times may come, testing times may go. This is the ebb and flow. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Ebb and Flow podcast. I'm your host, Eben Britton. I hope you guys are staying positive, staying in the gratitude these days. It's of the utmost importance. Today, I have a hell of a guest, my Canadian brother from another mother, uh, former NHL enforcer turned spiritual warrior, my brother Riley Cote. Welcome to the podcast, my brother. Thanks for having me, brother. Absolutely. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, for you guys who don't know, Riley and I are, are founding members of Athletes for Care. Uh, it's one of our, our uh, organizations we've built together that continues to, to grow and evolve as this sort of idea of holistic health starts to permeate the mainstream culture and athletics in particular, and offering a resource and a new community for all athletes coming out of their sports careers. Um, and we can get into that a little bit. But Riley, man, I mean, people people call me, you know, the Zen master, but I always look to you, man. You're like, you know, we're kindred spirits in, in that we've really gone deep into, you know, the cave, as it were in our life after sports as an enforcer in the NHL, man, you were in 200 plus fights, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so talk a little <laughs> bit about that evolution. Talk about who you were during your playing days and how you come to be who you are now. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's been quite the evolution and transformation. I always say when I talk about this, uh, I think I was spiritually confused. Mm. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know, you know, who I was. I was trying to find myself. I think I was certainly headed by ego, uh, but, you know, took taking on the, the role of the enforcer and fighting as a, as a job um, allowed mm. me to live out my childhood dream. But I think it, it, looking back on it, there was just a lot of confusion on, you know, on who I was and, and, and how to be, you know, become known and, and all these things that you know, a lot of people seem to focus on, but not necessarily the, the right ways to approach life. So I think I learned a lot in my eight years of professional hockey fighting and you know, working up the ladder from the minor, minor leagues to the minor leagues, to the, uh, you know, to the NHL and, and living out my childhood dream. But I, but I think I realized once I achieved my dream that it wasn't as fulfilling as uh, I thought it should have been. And I think it was, you know, mainly the emotional roller coaster that I was on, you know, amping, fight my, amping myself up to fight every night and every other night. And just that, you know, that uh, you know, chronic state of anxiety that I landed up being in. So talk it wasn't that. resonating well. Talk about that a little bit, man. What was it like to get yourself amped up knowing that, you're going to war, you know, and you had to get ready get your mind and your body prepared for battle every night. 
Sure. I think that part was the most, um, you know, mentally exhausting component to the whole fighting role, right? I think the physical part was easy, you know, engaging in that battle and you know, being competitive. That was the easy part, but just that, that, uh, that element of chronic anxiety, always knowing you're going to fight, but not knowing when I think it would have been easier for me to be a UFC fighter, a boxer, I think, because I, I, I would know when the bell rang and the cage closed yeah. or, you know, once I was in the ring, I would be fighting. I think there was something a little bit different with hockey where the puck would drop, you know, I wouldn't get out there until four or five minutes into the game. And, you know, I didn't know when the fight was going to happen. Part, part of me was, do I start the fight now, engage in the fight now, or, or do I just play hockey? And, you know, there's a lot of just, you know, mind games that go along with it. So certainly that part of it was the, the most difficult part. It was just an emo- emotional roller coaster, amping yourself up to fight and then trying to find that calm, you know, that, that calmness after the game to, to, to sleep and, and recover and repair so I could get up and do it all over again. But uh, always wrapping yourself up to fight um, is, 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 a, is a hard place for most people to understand, you know, yeah. unless you're in like the military, and, you know, in a, obviously in a completely different environment where your life's, uh, you know, at risk all the time. But that chronic state of anxiety is really the best way to describe that, uh, you know, that, that role. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um... I feel, you know, in my experience, you know, playing offensive line is very much like being the enforcer on your, uh, in a hockey team. You know, it's just a constant, it's a fist fight in a phone booth, you know, 80 times, 80 times a game. And, you know, so I really resonate with, you know, you and who you were, who you were as an athlete. Um, And looking back on my career, you know, having had some time to really reflect on what football was for me and what my what my uh, sports career was, you know, I was never really playing for myself. You know, I was always playing to prove to the world how big and tough and badass I was, you know, and it just destroyed me, you know, because like you said, you know, my child, I achieved this childhood dream of climbing this mountain and reaching the peak of getting to the NFL. But there was still this, you know, massive hole in the center of my soul. You know, I, I wasn't, I was still not enough for myself, you know, millions of dollars, the house, the car, all the material possessions I could ever have dreamed of at my fingertips. And yet I was miserable you know, and I didn't feel like I had achieved anything. Did you feel something similar to that? A hundred percent. And I think that's where like the spiritually confused part comes into play because you're chasing something outside of yourself, right? And you're expecting it to be fulfilling, right? I guess when you think of making it to the big leagues and when you're growing up, you just feel like it's, you're on top of the world and it's, it's glorious and it's magical and you've made it and everything is going to be kosher. But as you grow, you're not just, you know, older and, and grow physically and, you know, emotionally, you're growing spiritually. And obviously, you know, the pursuit of happiness, you know, encompasses these things that potentially these these roles and these jobs don't really provide. Right. I mean, there's there's there, at least when we played, there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on mindfulness. Right. I think now there is a little more in sports, um, especially in the hockey world, I can speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, again, we're glorifying the physical body and we're, you know, we're, we're fighting out of fear. We, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our job to the best of our ability is out of fear of fear of failure or 
uh, fear of letting people down, whether it's your parents or, or even your, yourself. Um, but all that stemming from the ego, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really not, you know, really part of the true, truly part of the spiritual process to live like that. Right. I think there's the yeah, there's an element of living like that and then figuring it out and then, you know, changing lanes, but, um, you know, we're mindless, we're mindless warriors, right? I mean, we're just, we're just trying to, you know, use our physical bodies to live our, live out our dreams. And I think if that to me is like, you know, the, the spiritual confusion is that like, what, am, what are we doing? What are we really trying to accomplish here? And I think you can do both if it's taught the right way and, you know, you approach yeah. it the right way. Right. But I think when you lack the spirit or the, the spiritual component and you just, just focus on the physical body and, and things outside of ourselves and things that really don't matter, materialism, eventually you're going to hit a wall because it's not going to be fulfilling, right? You can have the money, you have the cars, the house, all that stuff. But if you're not doing what's required to, to feed the spirit, you're, you're going to be emotionally dead. So I think, uh, and spiritually dead. So you have to you know, get back on the path of what serves you as the divine spirit and, 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 and work on that. And that's, you know, self-care, self-respect. I mean, mm. I mean, I, you know, I, I got speak for you, but you know, overeating to, to fill a, you know, to fill a, a job position. I was doing the same thing. I was, you know, 25 yeah. pounds heavier than I am today, yeah. eating, eating, eating like zero respect for my body. Right. And as, yeah. hard as, as hard as I was eating, I was playing. And then as hard as I was playing, I was partying. Yeah. So just no respect, right. No respect to ourselves, no self-love. And yeah. that's what I learned. The biggest thing is that self-love self-care component. Absolutely, man. That's such a key, you know, cause people sort of ask, I've been doing, so, it's interesting. Like, I've been doing a lot of interviews lately and uh, obviously getting this podcast cranking up and, you know, people have been asking me like, Eb, how did you go from this super violent athlete to this like yogi that you are today? You know, Mr. Peaceful and Zen, all that shit. And, you know, it's such a like incremental process you know, of like whittling away the ego and dissolving all the shit and all the veils I've put over myself and wrapped myself and all the resentments and the shame and the guilt and all the shit that I put on myself. Yep. But dude, what you said, I think is such the key of it all. And it can be so misleading and sort of miss, uh, you know, lost in translation, that idea of self-love and self-care. And, um, you know, because for so long, and, and I'll let you riff on this in a second, but um, for so long, I was like overriding my heart. I was overriding my spirit, you know, grinding okay. through the pain to get through it, you know. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's not sustainable when you're doing something for the sake of something else or someone else or for a paycheck, you know, and I've really realized in my life after football that the only reason, the only sustainable reason that you should really ever do anything is for the sake of that thing and for the sake of the love of that thing. Do you right. agree with that? hundred percent. Yeah. If, 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 if there's no true love, you know, the ingredient of love within it, then there's, there's no really no, there's no purpose doing it. And I think, you know, the love of the game is certainly different than, you know, the love of yourself. And, 
uh, to your point on, um, you know, the, the misleading part of self-love, you know, it sounds selfish, right? Self-love, self-care. Well, you know, I, I think that's the stigma we need to break is, right. is that, that, you know, I, I guess, I guess it is selfish and it's okay to be selfish because if you can't take care of yourself, how are you going to be able to be fit to serve to help others? It's like, you know, the analogy of uh, the airplane and, you know, airplanes going down and say that they tell you put the mask on yourself first right? so you can help others. Right. And I think, the self-care component and the self-love is like you really can't truly love or emit love or express out of true love if you don't love yourself. And I think every religious religious text says it. Every spiritual leader talks about it. Um, but that ingredient right there is is misinterpreted um, a lot. And um, yeah, um, I, I you know I I think Absolutely. it needs to be focused on. Uh, no, you totally hit it. I mean, you know, because we're just like walking mirrors at the end of the day. You know. And so yep. whatever is going on, however we think about ourselves is how we're going to project out onto others and the world and the people around us, you know? Um, so you've done, you've had a bunch of pretty uh, awesome ceremony experiences lately. I know you went uh, to Peru, you were just in Jamaica um, interestingly enough, I had just sat in ayahuasca ceremony, like March, beginning of March, right before this whole coronavirus thing hit. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, and I've had, you know, and I feel like that really gave me this foundation to get through this period. Like it's, it seemed like it was just, you know, it's very cosmic, obviously, and everything's right. Be and, um, but I'm curious uh, talk a little bit about your, you know, obviously you're, you're a, a great advocate for plant medicine, cannabis and so on, psilocybin, et cetera. Um, talk a little bit about your, how'd you get into that, man? What was the journey like for you uh, on the path to healing through plant medicine? Sure. It landed up being through my relationship with cannabis and plant medicine throughout my hockey career. But um, when I was using it throughout my hockey career and early on in my life, there was no true intention behind it. You know, I, th I think the intention was to use it like a recreational drug or, you know, or you know, a, a party, party tool, an escape, right? Escape Not really understanding the, the difference. Exactly. So kind of using it like I was alcohol and some of these other party drugs. So really no understanding um, of its, you know, scientific, the medical value and therapeutic value and, and really truly spiritual value, even though I, I definitely understood that cannabis and, and psilocybin mushrooms were affecting me in a completely different way than, say, alcohol and cocaine and ecstasy and whatever other <laughs> stupid shit I was doing. Yeah. Um, so I had that relationship previous to me retiring. So when I retired at the age of 28, uh, part of the strategy was to avoid traditional substance abuse programs. Another year on my contract, a one-way uh, deal with the Flyers, and I got an opportunity to to get into coaching. But the you know the opportunity presented itself because of the situation I was in from the management, and I looked at that as an exit strategy, an exit strategy mm. to kind of get out of the game but stay in the game on the other side of the fence, mm. but also to to treat my substance abuse issues with plant medicine opposed to sitting in a 30 day or 60 day substance abuse program. Mm. So with my previous uh, relationship with these 
with these uh, plant medicines at the time. I didn't even know they were plant medicines, right? They were just like, yeah, it's something to do. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Medicines and they were, he- they were here to heal. Then all of a sudden I had this completely different perspective on them and a different uh, intention going into it. So my last two surgeries when I was 28, just used cannabis. And then at, at that time when I started studying, you know, different cannabinoids and, and just the, you know, the cannabis plant in its entirety, I started reading books on psilocybin mushrooms. So a lot of the same. My apologies, folks. We've got some technical difficulties. Hoping to get it squared away in a second. I know the environment changed, but <laughs> it's all good. We're back, baby. <laughs> so you were talking about your um journey into plant medicine how it started with cannabis not you know using it without really having an understanding of the science and the medicinal benefits but using it as an escape from the pain um and so take it from there yeah, so I guess my relationship with uh, both cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms gave me the confidence to, to uh, you know, use these plant medicines as a, an alternative to traditional substance abuse programs. So my understanding um, when I retired, you know, the science that I was reading and, you know, the therapeutic and medicinal values of these plants and fungi certainly resonated with my experience to them previously. So uh, between the science and my experience gave me the comfort and the confidence to say, avoid traditional substance abuse programs and just use these plant medicines as uh, as a tool to, to, to heal, to, you know, get off these, you know, toxic and addictive substances and to use these as tools, to not just heal, but then to you know, really focus on human optimization and using these to take myself and my health and my wellness to the next level. So, Again, just the, the experience and then understanding the science just gave me that confidence to really lean on these with uh, absolute comfort. Amazing, man. Yeah, I've definitely found the same, had the same experience, you know. Uh, and I think it, you know, uh, it has to do with, you know, the fact that these plant medicines, these molecules take us within ourselves. They show us our pain and help us release ourselves from it, you know. Um, That's it. you know, when they talk about, you know, anyone who's read about or, uh, watched any documentaries about DMT or ayahuasca and you hear about the ego death, you know, the ego death, you can really experience that anytime if you're willing and allowing, you know, sure. um, but these molecules really focus on dissolving that sort of filter that we see the world through right. so that you know, you can come to, you know, your specific mechanisms of functioning and look at them with an unbiased eye, you know, without having to protect yourself, etc. So yeah. I'm really curious, man, how was this trip to Peru that you took? What was that like? It was amazing. It was, uh, it was one of the most challenging things I've done in my life, uh, but also one of the most rewarding things I've done. So between actually getting on a plane and traveling to Peru to experience this type of ceremony, digital detox away from my family Mm. right after Christmas time. So, you know, that was challenging enough as it was. And then engaging in, uh, you know, the ceremonies did three of them. And the first one was, uh, was, was tough. I mean, it kicked my ass. The first two hours were, 
say hell. I mean, you talk about ego death. I think I died like five or six times within that first two hours and just saw myself from a different perspective. And, you know, you just, you know, you really do evaluate yourself and, and, you know, focus on the things that you need to work on. And you, you get, instead of avoiding your fears and your traumas, like you're facing them and you're making sense of them, you're making peace of them. Um, but after that, after that first two hours, of the first uh, ceremony, there was nothing but peace you know, peace and, and love and, and, you know, and just that sense of respect, that self-respect. Um, second ceremony was um, a little different. It was a lot, it was the same dose, but lighter for me as far as, uh, mm. you know, the hard work that I had to put in. It was maybe 45 minutes of real true deep seated purging and, and work. And then just the rest of it was pure peace and bliss and love and all these, you know, emotions that we're trying to, you know, find and engage in. So, um, and the third one was a, l- a lighter dose and there was no purging. It was nothing but peace and making sense of it all kind of, kind of joining both the first and sec- second ceremony together and making sense of it all. But overall, just an amazing, amazing experience. Talk about emotional release, mm. spiritual release. Um, and then just, again, just instead of avoiding your traumas and fears and, and, and your baggage, you're, you're facing it, you're reliving it making peace with it, you're bowing out and then you're, you're moving on with your life. But you can almost sense like the energy chakra is almost opening up mm. and, and releasing, um, you know, just that, that just, just releasing what it needs to, to again, tap into the energies that were probably blocked by these, you know, emotional and spiritual blockages. So overall amazing, you know, just the fasting, the, the you know, going into it, the dieta three, four yeah. weeks of that, just fasting from, all these other things. Uh, we had a plant, plant-based diet while we were there. It's only two meals a day. I think I purged out at least one meal, one of those meals a day. <laughs> but I think I left about 10, 15 pounds lighter um, physically, but I just felt like I was 100 pounds lighter emotionally and spiritually. It was, it was something, you know, like you, no one can experience something like that without, you know, a, a psychedelic in my opinion. You know, you have, to, yeah. you, know, you have to be ready for it, first of all, and you have to go into it with intention, but super powerful. Absolutely, man. It's like going to the gym, you know, it's like training, you know, training camp. That's what I said. I was like training camp. I was like, of all the grueling training camps I've been to um, times 10, because it's like not just a physical, you know, emotional, you know, emotional one, but it's like spiritual. It's like stuff you don't want to see and you don't want to hear. Um, but it, it, it shows you that, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, it's so interesting, man. You know, who was it with the um, ship at bow? Yeah. Uh, you talking about the shaman? Yeah. Yeah, it was a shaman. Yeah, it wasn't uh he he, he was not uh, native to to Peru. He'd been living in Peru for 15 years practicing okay. as a shaman for 12 years. He'd moved from England actually. Oh wow. Um, but he had this amazing like amazing estate like 76 acres of, you know, high jungle and just uh you know, wow. he's been doing it for years. Uh it was very well done him and his wife actually and then they had this other Peruvian local that helped uh but just like a well-oiled machine, you know, where you know seven mm-hmm. seven bodies in this maloca and you know, we're all purging almost at the same time and they're swapping out buckets and, you know, it was, yeah. it was well done, you know, there's awesome. to learn the history. It was pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, yeah. you know, it's so interesting. These, these, uh, indigenous people like these, these ceremonies, these medicines are such a part of their culture. And, you know, in the West, we, we think like we're walking around and like, you know, if you're not breaking down in tears or violently lashing out at people, like you've got it all figured out and you're fine. <laughs> right. But it's just such a, you know, they do these things 
throughout the year. Like they have mm-hmm. multiple ceremonies. I mean, maybe even weekly, monthly. I'm not exactly sure. Like the shaman that I've worked with comes from this tribe in the Brazilian Amazon called the Yawanawa. And he's oh, nice. a young chief and he's he's sort of their emerging medicine man. And his father was a medicine man and his grandfather was a very well-known medicine man. And, um, you know, they use these medicines to stay clear, you know, yeah. and to stay in touch with the source and their humanity. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people, you know, like we, like you just said, I don't know if you can get that depth of emotional clearing without plant medicine like that, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I know you can tap into some higher uh, levels, states of consciousness through meditation and all these, uh, and these, and these different practices. But to me, like to experience something like ayahuasca, I don't know how else you get into that state and, and to, uh, you know, to really explore that state of DMT and, and just exploring yourself for an extended period of time. Um, and I, and I pre- appreciate you saying that because, you know, like the, these cultures in, in, in Peru and, and abroad that they, they're not just using these as reactive healing tools like we do in the West where we're damaged. You know, we got brain injury, yeah. we got PTSD, we've got addiction. And now we got to, you know, fly to the jungle and, you know, drink some, some ayahuasca. Right. They're almost using it as like a, a preventative medicine. Just like, yeah. you know, we talk about ca- cannabis being a preventative medicine. Whereas like if you constantly are focused on not just uh, taking care of your physical body and, and your mind, but, the, you know, you're the spiritual component that you're going to be well, right? And I yeah. think that's the one thing that's missing in the West is, is focusing on the spiritual component. It's, it's too woo-woo for most people. Yeah. You know, right away they box up and they go into this religious square. Exactly. Where, you know, it's like the, the, the spiritual component to me is the, is the glue, right? Yes. I and mean, if you don't have that, you, you have pieces of the other, but you're never really fully fulfilled and you're never really fully connected, not just to yourself, but to others in the environment. And I think that's what I seen with my own eyes and felt was that they're so connected with mother nature and, and the earth and the environment that it's undeniable that these medicines help you re- reconnect and ground out the, the, and the very thing that we're missing in the West is just that connection. To me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, uh, it's so true. Just in our sort of indoctrination in the West is, you know, we want to compartmentalize everything, man. Yeah. Like if you want God, you go to church. If you right. want to get educated, you go to school. If you want this, you go there. Fun, that's over there. You know, yeah. and it's like... So true. Wait a minute, dude. You know, nothing is is separate from anything else, you know. Yeah. This all flows together, you know. I was having this interesting talk with Mike, uh, Mike Tyson once on the podcast. And uh, he's like, you know, he's talking about how um kings and rulers and tyrants throughout history have you know treated mistreated people and treated people like shit and you know they can do that because it's like exacting their will on others and how you know him and his life mike in his own life he's you know compartmentalized like treating other people like shit and i'm like mike but you can never do that. 
you can't just go around treating others however you feel like it because at some point your spirit brings that back on you right and you Karma. feel the guilt and the shame and the resentment you know sure so there is no compartmentalizing anything you know everything we do is connected to, because like we're here we are the fucking watchers we are the experiencers of this life and so how do you think you're going to go out and do something and think that it doesn't affect you or anyone else around you like it all affects you and it all sure. affects the people around you you know that's the truth yeah that's the law of karma right i mean exactly the, the, the law of vibration it's like what you put out there and emit eventually will come back around in, in some way, shape or form. So the people that do that and, you know, they, they say the global elite and the people that are taking advantage of, uh, of human life and just life yeah. in general, I, I just have a hard time believing like truly that they're, they're truly happy people. There's no. gotta be so much evil and, 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 you know, just, just the misunderstood emotions and whatnot within them. I just can't believe that they're, that they're healthy minded people. Um, to be living like that and taking advantage and treating people like garbage and thinking that they're just going to you know, cruise along the world without any sort of you know, ramification. So I, I think everything you do, every thought that you, you, you comes to your head and every thing you put in your body, um, it's, it's, there's, it, all, it all falls under the umbrella of the law of karma. It's like you are what you eat. You are what you think. You know? you, yeah. you know, emitting, emitting out of a place of love versus emitting out of a place of fear and anger, right? I mean, you're, the response is going to be different. Um, the result's going to be different. And, and then again, going back to your own true happiness, that's really what the, the telltale sign is. If it, if it makes you feel good and, and, and it's rewarding spiritually, you're, you will know. And yep. if it's not, you will know too, right? Yep. I mean, it will tell you there's going to be guilt. There's going to be resentment. There's going to be all these negative emotions. So just going back to that, again, that, that, the conversation about spirituality, it's the one thing you really can't quantify, but it's the, the, the ingredient, the most important ingredient. If you don't have that, you can have all the money and you can have the power and all this stuff. But if you're trying to be a happy, you know, spiritual being, and if you're not practicing that, you're, you're not going to ever be a spiritual being. You're just, you're just being, you know, and yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a scary road to be you're down. Yeah. Doing. You're just doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Hey brother, I want to, uh, I want to talk about, you know, the work you're doing now and uh, your businesses and your projects Talk a little bit about hemp heels and body check wellness uh, before we have to roll out of here. Sure. Yeah, so when I retired in 2010, the age of 28, uh, again, part of all these things we're talking about, got into plant medicine and understood the cannabis plant from a different perspective, you know, not just medicine, but uh, the industrial applications, the food, the fiber, you know, the, the whole nine yards. So, I started a nonprofit back then, just raising awareness about the, the viability of the cannabis and hemp plants as, as far as an industrial resource. So again, just highlighting the CBD and these other non-intoxicating cannabinoids that were misunderstood or not understood at all. And then just the, the, the depth of the, the cannabis and hemp plant, the layers that go into what it could potentially do for mankind. So that was a nonprofit, do, do a music festival in Philly every year up until this year because of the coronavirus. But uh, that was the main platform of education and just showing the different faces of cannabis and eventually led me into body check wellness which is a, a for-profit um hemp derived cbd company that uh you know just really say specializes in premium you know, organically grown hemp but then we're trying to get into other 
um, you know, healing modalities such as mushrooms. And we do a blend of you know, full spectrum CBD with uh, six different uh, therapeutic and functional mushrooms like lion's mane, cordyceps and, and reishi and chaga and the rest of them. So just, uh, just, just trying to promote all things wellness, you know, through plant medicine that way. And then we're working on a, a hemp processing facility here with a state university in Pennsylvania to bring everything in house and be vertically integrated and also building a curriculum soil to oil through the school as well. So that's, that's kind awesome. of it in a nutshell. Yeah. In the hemp space. Yeah. So that's so awesome. What is the state of cannabis in Pennsylvania? So Pennsylvania has a medical cannabis program that is pretty, say pretty robust as far as the conditions that are allowed for the medical cannabis program, 23 conditions, which is a lot more than most states. Um, the, the law, so the regulations within that program are somewhat, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, confusing because there's no, there's no edibles sold. It's the only edible sold that would be a, a capsule, but no, no actual true edibles, no, no food, no gummies, none of that. Not that you necessarily need that. Uh, for yeah. the first year, there was no flour. It was just vape carts and, and, and concentrated vape oils. So that's, yeah, that, that's evolved to, to a little bit better. And they're opening up conditions. So, in the grand scheme of medical cannabis programs within the states, I would I'd say it was it's up there with one of the best, only because it opens up uh, the ability for a ton of different people to um, to get a medical card. Right? It's uh, it, it's if you've got anxiety, that's that's one of the qualifying conditions, and I think most people could you know fall into that category in pain. So between those two, you can get a card. So it's not uh, it's not like New Jersey where they got four medical conditions and you have to be on your deathbed before you can get a medical card. So Working on adult use here in Pennsylvania, probably another year or two away. I know New Jersey and New York probably beat us to that, but uh, yeah, it's it's evolving. And then you got a hemp program, just like most states, uh, even previous to the Farm Bill, where there was a state-run uh, hemp program, which was obviously a lot easier to enter. You know, a lot less capital required to enter that space, and um, just got to stay under the point three percent THC. So, well, I mean, that's that's awesome. Uh, it's interesting how New Jersey and New York will be, you know, moving into an adult use program when they have such weird, stringent conditions on the medical aspect. Um, but, you know, like you, I really believe in the industrial uses of the hemp plant. Where are we in that, man? Because, you know, there's remarkable stuff about, you know, using hemp fibers to build houses you know, the, how it reduces CO2 emissions, you know, there's, there's incredible research on hemp as a material, a building material. Where are we on that? Is that something that, you know, five, 10 years from now, we could see building hemp houses? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're, we're way behind where we should be on the industrial side of things. The low-hanging fruit's been the CBD, right? So any Anybody that's growing hemp, I uh, say 95% of all Americans that are growing hemp are growing for, you know, the cannabinoid profile. So um, there is a few groups growing for fiber and doing some in interesting stuff. The infrastructure is just not there for the industrial, um, you know, scaling the industrial side, right? I mean, you need thousands and thousands and thousands of acres to be sustaining, whether it's a, a partnership with Ford, for example, if you want to start building cars out of. Uh, out of hemp again like they did in the, in the late 30s Henry yeah. Ford built the car out of hemp and ran on a hemp, fi hemp biomass yeah you, you know you're 
you're needing like 200 to 300,000 acres specifically just for that one project, that one client, you know, and there's just not enough hemp grown like that. And and the, and and the infrastructure to be processing that amount of fiber is just not uh, there yet. There's a few processing facilities, the cortication facilities, but some of these products, these end products need like an extra step or two of processing to get them into that, you know, that prime, prime form for whatever they're trying to accomplish so you know you said five ten years that's probably more realistic but everyone's kind of just taking advantage of the low-hanging fruit which is the uh is the cbd and just yeah. um capitalizing off that and then and then eventually moving into more of the industrial uh applications because right now we've taken a, a very diverse crop and we're using it very you know very um uh you know one-dimensionally right we're, uh-huh. we're taking something that should have no no waste and we're just growing it just for the flowers and we're, you know, just discarding the rest of it. So in Canada, they've, they've kind of already started to adapt to the, uh, the dual purpose or the tri tri purpose crops where they're able to still harvest lower, lower amounts of CBD in the flowers, but they're able to salvage their, their stocks and therefore, you know, actually making it more viable of a crop that way. So that's the, that's the next direction is to, is to just be more responsible with the plant, right. Instead of just, just growing it for its flowers and then getting rid of the rest of it. So we've got some work to do. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey man, uh, I think, you know, we could keep that conversation going and hopefully we see that starting to happen sooner rather than later. Cause I know it'd be a huge, a huge deal for our environment, for the planet and, you know, for everyone who could have access to that. Um, well, shoot, brother, I, I know you got to roll on to your, your next call. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, sharing your knowledge and your experience with me and my audience, uh, let them know where they can follow you at and where they can find your products, et cetera. And I'll be sure to have that in the show notes as well. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, my personal Instagram page is Riley Cote 32, R-I-L-E-Y-C-O-T-E 32, Twitter, it's Riley Coyote, R-I-L-E-E-C-O-I-O-T-E. Um, that's my Twitter handle. And then Body Check Wellness, so bodycheckwellness.com. And check is spelled with C-H-E-K. And we're on all uh, social media platforms as well. So appreciate you having me on, brother. Yeah, man, absolutely. How about your podcast? Are you still doing it? I am, yeah. Yeah, I got to get you on. Yeah, I'm five, yeah. five episodes deep. I know you're uh, busy with all the shit you got going on, but definitely I'd love to have you on. And I'd love to pick up where we left off. Yeah. So maybe next week or so. All right, man. All right, brother. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ebb and flow podcast. Really appreciate my brother, Riley Cote stopping by to share his wisdom with us. Um, Hey guys, stay in the gratitude, stay positive, get some movement in, meditate, pray, drink plenty of water. Let everything take care of itself. Lots of love to you all. I'm out of here. Until next time, peace.